Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ah, yes. Tulum, Mexico. This is where I am doing the podcast from today. It's my birthday week, and I'm celebrating it here in Tulum, Mexico. You can hear the ocean in the background. Great time to be here and great time to listen to the podcast because today we have two great interviews that I prepared for you guys. My first guest is Carlos Aguilar. He is a Latino film critic, and there's not that many of us. And he's going to be talking to me today about the three best Spanish language movies of 2018 so far. But what are those three that you guys should definitely see either in theaters or on DVD this weekend? If you like world cinema, if you like foreign films, if you like movies spoken in another language that's not Span- that's not English, then check out my interview with Carlos in just a bit. Then we're going to be exploring the state of black theater in America with Ekundayu Bandele. He is the executive director of the Hattie Lou Theater in Memphis. And its whole focus is on creating African-American stories for the stage, but for everyone, meaning Latinos, whites, Asians, Indians, everyone, not just uh, African-American people. And that's one of the things that attracted me the most to want to talk to Mr. Bandele. We're also going to be talking about how New York's African-American stories are being told, if they are even being told at all. And uh, when will we see that Obama story hit the stage? That and much more here on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Stay tuned, guys. I'm joined now by a film critic who I've been following for some time on Twitter. He's one of the few Latino film critics in America uh, and someone who has a lot of influence and who has written some really incredible articles and reviews. Uh, he writes for Remescla, Movie Maker Magazine, and The Wrap. His name is Carlos Aguilar, and I am very grateful to have him on the show. How are you, Carlos? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Uh, excited to chat with you about some great movies. So before we begin and talk a little bit about the spe- the three best Spanish language movies of 2018 so far, I wanted to talk to you about film criticism and Latinos. You are one of the very few of them that exist in America that work for some uh, major uh, websites and brands. Why do you think that Latino film critics are so scarce in American uh, journalism? I mean, I don't think that we're scarce. I think there's a lot of us. It's just it's just hard to get any sort of prominence or make it, uh, you know, to a level where you're recognized so people know about you because the opportunities, I mean, in general, opportunities to write about film, you know, to be a film critic or a film journalist, they're scarce. And then when you're a person of color or Latino, it becomes even more difficult to enter those spaces because we, uh, you know, traditionally we are, you know, we are thought, told or taught that uh, we don't belong there or that, you know, those are like white spaces or whatnot. So I think that it's a lot of, it's a lot of problems. It's a lot of the fact that there's no, you know, opportunities often go to the usual suspects rather than Latinos or people of color. And then, you know, making your voice uh, hurt in a space that's already so crowded. It's very complicated, I feel. True. How did you get into film criticism? Um, you know, it was, I mean, I feel like there there are some people out there that, 
that do begin, you know, or aim to become film critics right from the get-go, like that's what they go to school for or whatnot. For me, it was a little different. I wanted to, uh, I saw a little bit of film production and wanted to get on that, that side of things. And I started writing for a personal blog and a few blogs here and there. And at some point, maybe about a year after I started just writing for a personal blog, someone, uh, a lady called Sydney Levine, who used to write for IndieWire, saw a blog I, I wrote about Mexican cinema, actually, and she liked it and invited me to write for her. And that kind of developed from there, you know, just pitching to outlets and kind of getting more clips and building up a reputation. And, uh, yeah, it really happened out of me just writing about film for my own sake and eventually someone noticing you know, that's interesting because that's how NBCNews.com called me. Um, I was tweeting about the Oscar uh, nominations on um, a particular day. I think it was about maybe three, four years ago. And uh, the editor-in-chief at that time was looking at the tweets and saw my tweets and said, hey, could you write an Oscar article for us regarding Hispanics? And it seems to be like if you just write what you want to write, whatever feels natural to you, and you want to share it, and you post it via a blog or on social media, it could give way for someone else to notice it. I mean, that's not, you know, uh, that's not someone making that stuff up. This is actually you and me. It happened to us. Oh, yeah, that I, I was writing for like, a, you know, I mean, I had looked for like outlets, like small outlets that I could, you know, of course, you begin writing for free and, and, you know, kind of putting my work out there in a personal blog and small sites. And then, you know, someone just looking for, I guess, this lady was looking for, uh, you know, articles on Mexican cinema and she came across mine and decided to send me an email and, you know, communicate. And that's what started. I mean, yeah, you. I mean, it's it's it could happen that way, but you do have to have something to you know to back it up with. You have to be ready to, <laughs> um, to get out there and write and and yeah, it's a, it's a hustle, but it could happen. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, let's talk about the three best Spanish language movies of 2018 so far. Um, so one of the ones that I love this year that opened back in May is uh, Sama uh, from Argentina, directed by Lucrecia Martel. Don Diego de Sama. El que hizo justicia sin emplear la espada. Un hombre de derecho. Un juez. Un hombre sin miedo. It's a pure piece set uh, during the Spanish uh, colonial times in South America. And it's a strange movie, but one that, you know, ha- packs a lot of... Uh, uh, commentary and questions about colonialism and uh, the way that uh, you know it ravaged Latin America, the way that the cultural clash that happened between the Spaniards and the indigenous people of the Americas. Uh, Lucrecia Martel is a very interesting director. Uh, she's only directed four films, but all of her films are considered masterpieces. Wow. So she's she's very specific about the films that she makes and takes. You know, I think it was almost ten years between this film and her previous film. Um, and Daniel Jimenez Cacho, a very famous Mexican actor, stars in Sama as Don Diego de Sama, the main character, who's sort of like a low-level um, officer uh, from the Spanish uh, crown, and he wants to go back home, and he's kind of stuck in this swamp in South America, dealing with the indigenous people and dealing with his own, uh, you know, kind of lack of power. And it's it's a dreamy. Uh, film full of metaphors and it's a little, you know, it's on the art house side, it's a little, it's not your typical film, it's not so easy to uh, understand right away, you have to kind of give it time and go with the flow of the story but it's incredibly well executed and yeah, she's a a very unique director for sure. What is it about the movie that you particularly uh, resonated with? I think that, you know, it touches on so many important questions about, you know, the history of Latin America, but it does it in a way that's uh, humorous at times and also surreal and magical. So she's she's telling you about, you know, uh, colonialism, but in a way that's not a history lesson. It's a cinematic experience, and I think that's something that, uh, you know, it's really interesting that she manages to touch on history and question, uh, uh, you know, uh, the times, but through a different lens. How, who would you compare Lucrecia to? To like a Sofia Coppola, maybe? 
No, I think Sofia Coppola is a little more safer in the way that she makes films. Uh, Lucrecia Martel is very daring. She's uh, even in her. If you read any of her interviews, she's kind of very dismissive of film at times. You know, she doesn't. She says that she doesn't want to make that many films because she doesn't have so much to say. Um, I don't know who I will compare her to. She's very unique. That's great. All right. So, what's the second movie after Sama that you really enjoyed? Uh, this one's one from Mexico, and it's called uh, Todo Lo Demás, uh, Everything Else, directed by Natalia Almada. ¿Qué no se fijó bien, señor? Hizo todo correctamente y lo hizo con letra de monte, pero una parte la tiene con tinta azul y otra parte la tiene con tinta negra. Todo tiene que ser con tinta azul, letra de molde y tinta. Es una vez que no tengo pluma. Conseguí una. No sabía que era iba a ser este. Se me acabó la pluma azul. And this one is a film that opened. I think also in May it opened in New York and it's done a few other cities. Uh, it's a film starring Adriana Barraza, the Mexican oh, yeah. actress. Of course. Yeah. She was nominated for an Oscar for Babel. And, you know, believe it or not, this film, Everything Else, is her first lead role in a movie um, ever. She's been working, you I know. I can't in, believe that. <laughs> yeah, she's been working in telenovelas and movies for several decades. You know, she's she was nominated for an Oscar. And this is the first time someone's ever her, ever offered her a lead role in a movie. And it's a, it's a quiet film. She plays a, a, a government worker in in Mexico City and you know she has sort of a boring life and it's it's vengeful against you know uh, people she works at a probably like a, like a, a DMB you could compare it to a DMB mm-hmm. so she she gets sort of like joy out of making people's lives difficult because her life is so <laughs> <laughs> so monotonous and boring and and you know the journey that the character takes is that uh, over the course of the film, we see her kind of open up to new experiences and she joins, you know, she joins a, a swimming class and starts kind of like getting out there and opening up a little more. And it's a quiet performance, but one that's very affecting. I think the movie, you know, the performance makes the movie in this case. Uh, she's so great in the role. And it's a female director, uh, Natalia Almada. And it's her first movie, her first fiction movie. She's directed a lot of documentaries, uh, but it's the first time she's done a fiction film. So what was it about this particular film that uh, that you like so much? The performance, yeah. Like I said, Adriana Barraza is just so uh, impressive. And, you know, the character, it's sort of like a, uh, a quiet, um, you know, kind of unassuming character, but the way she brings it to the screen uh, packs a lot of emotion. I think that's what makes it powerful. Do you think it was something in terms of the performance of Daniela Vega, which is understated but yet powerful? In in A Fantastic Woman, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, in that one for sure. Yeah, that's an amazing Would you? Uh, yeah, but would you compare Adriana Barraza's performance like Daniela Vega's in this film? I think Adriana Barraza's is even more subtle it's even more quiet and subdued you know because daniela vega in a fantastic woman has some moments of catharsis and kind of uh you know kind of bigger louder moments uh in this case the character is so quiet that even when you know that something's happening in her life it's still kind of unspoken Hmm, interesting all right now we have the third best spanish language movie of 2018 that you've seen so far what is it this one's one that actually just opened today in new york uh so la familia uh no cocote (laughs) okay where's that from and and what does cocote mean Cocote is a film from the Dominican Republic. Él me llamó a mí, me dijo que yo venía para el entierro de mi papá. Si yo sé que yo vengo a esto de rezo y eso, le digo por el mismo teléfono que no. And a cocote is sort of like uh, your neck or this, uh, you know, this back part of your neck. Um, and it refers to like when when you, when they cut uh, a chicken's head off or when you cut someone's, you know, person's head off. Um, that's what cocote means. Got so, it. It's a movie about revenge. It's a movie about this, this man who lives in Santo Domingo, the, the capital of the Dominican Republic, and who works as a, a gardener for a wealthy family and has to go back to his small town after his father dead. And he's become a Jehovah's Witness, and his family is still, you know, Catholic and practices uh 
what some will call witchcraft or brujería. So he's kind of conflicted between, you know, his newfound religion and the traditions of his family. And, you know, his family wants him to avenge his father. And because he's become a Jehovah's Witness and it's kind of like closer to religion, he doesn't want to, you know, commit any uh, acts of violence. It's a very unique film. It's almost experimental in the way that he mm. uses black, uses black and white uh, and color, and he uses, you know, music, traditional music with like electronic music, and it just it's all over the place in the in the way that he uses film. Uh, but it's very powerful. And it's probably one of the best films I've ever seen from the Dominican Republic. Wow, because they have several, you know, the Dominican Republic isn't really known for quality filmmaking or even having quality film actors, uh, you know, aside from Zoe Saldana and and, uh, and Dania Ramirez and, and a couple of other ones. But, but you know, Oscar-winning actor thespians, they're not really known for, but their movies probably in the last three years, three, four years, you've noticed that with Woodpeckers or The Watchman, uh, these are movies that have definitely made an impact. I think there was one with uh, Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter or daughter. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, Sand Dollars with Geraldine Chaplin. Sand Dollars, exactamente. And I think that was another movie that started going around the festivals and people waking up to the Dominican Republic. And before we get to Argentina and Mexico's cinema... Let's talk a little bit about the Dominican Republic. Where do you see the country in terms of uh, being a real big player in the cinema field uh, for Spanish language movies? I think that, you know, the the big reason why it's perhaps now we've, we've seen now more uh, of this festival quality films in the Dominican yeah. Republic is, is perhaps that they're, they're there's simply more films being made, you know, they have more uh, uh, incentives for the government and there's more opportunity to make films. So the more films you make, you know, the better chances there are that that something like this could emerge, you know, Um, before when they will only make sort of like local comedies or, you know, uh, kind of a commercial films for the local market, uh, that's all what that was being made. But now that it's kind of, you know, they diversified and they're making all sorts of different films, um, their, their results are impressive, you know? And yeah, I think that in the next few years, we're going to see more and more. I think this is just the beginning of this coming of age of the Dominican Republic as a player in international cinema. I think recently they also built some... Uh, Fancy major studio, yeah. In the Dominican Republic, so that's true. Vin Diesel supposedly is one of the investors in one of these big water studios where a lot of Hollywood films are going to the Dominican Republic to shoot uh, submerged underneath, uh, you know, ocean scenes at this studio or something like that, right? Yeah. So I mean, I hope that you know not only. Uh, all the productions benefit from that, but I hope that the local filmmakers, you know, get you know benefit from from this influx of of, of money and of quality and talent. And you know, there's great local talent. I just want to mention the name of the director of Cocote, which I forgot to say previously. His name is it's a mouthful. Is Nelson Carlo de los Santos Arias? <laughs> it sounds like a joke, you know, when somebody says like twenty names at the same time. Yeah, that's, uh, it's that's a name. <laughs> I'll just call him Nelson. Um, you know, we've talked about Argentina, Mexico, and now we're talking about the Dominican Republic. And it kind of brings me to this place in Latin America where I feel like the quality of filmmaking is getting better year after year. But the prominent country that has definitely made a, a, a major mark has been Chile. Um, For sure. Tell me a little bit about how Chile is doing in terms of movies. How many movies from Chile have you seen and are they all good? Are they hit and miss? And then I want to talk about Colombia because I feel like Colombia has the potential to be a massive player in filmmaking, but they're not. I mean, Chile has done, you know, particularly well. I feel like it's we've we've seen now kind of like the peak with the Oscar win and all that, but it's been happening for, you know, uh, over a decade with uh, Pablo Larraín and Juan de Dios Larraín, his brother, the producer. Y ahora Sebastián Lelo. Sebastián Lelo, yeah. Um, you know, so all these filmmakers, uh, they're getting noticed in the U.S. now, of course, because Pablo Larraín made um, Jackie and, and there's plenty of other great filmmakers from Chile that made their mark, you know. Now, what about Colombia? Of course, Embrace of the Serpent was kind of like... Uh, 
a big uh, moment for the country was their first Oscar nomination for foreign language film. And now those directors, uh, Ciro Guerra has a new film uh, coming out called Birds of Passage, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, hopefully will be Colombia's Oscar film this year. Um, and yeah, they've been doing a lot of great stuff. Um, I feel like we, we, we don't see as much as, as you mentioned, you know, like we do from Chile, because I feel like they, uh, they haven't had that kind of a, a bulk of movies, you know, coming out, uh, quickly in a few years that really make you notice but earlier this year i saw some called killing jesus matara jesus uh-huh. i don't know if you've seen it no 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 later. it's a, a great colombian film that's playing festivals i don't think it's got a u.s distribution yet but it's been playing a lot of festivals and it's a fantastic movie about this young woman uh, again so trying to avenge her father and the kind of complications and complexity that happened uh to her uh, yeah, it's a great film that just premiered in in festivals this year. A, a huge problem that I have with Latin cinema is, number one, I don't get to see enough. And I think that that's a problem with a lot of the studios here in the United States that either don't buy them uh, or they're straight to DVD and they don't market these movies at all. So we never really get to watch many of them. But once they do come, here's the problem about Latin American cinema. Because it doesn't have that Hollywood flavor and it has more of an auteur, vanguardista sort of vibe to it, that's not meant for the masses. Because even when they play in their own country, great example in the Dominican Republic, el género número uno uh, of, of movie making in the Dominican Republic is comedy. For sure. So whenever you give somebody like a sand dollars, the movie doesn't make that much money at the box office, making it a quote-unquote failure. Yet, the prestige it has to be nominated uh, or submitted as the premier film for the Dominican Republic towards the Oscars, that's a big deal. That makes more news than a hit at the box office that will dissipate as soon as the next movie comes out, the next comedy comes out. Why is it important for people to watch Latin and world cinema? I mean, I think that the, the problem you mentioned, you know, as it's, it's a lot of things, you know, um, I feel like, you know, every, every, every movie could be uh, for mass consumption, but we have been, especially in Latin America and, you know, the developing world, uh, I grew up in Mexico, so I know that, you know, we watch growing up, you only watch American movies and the market is saturated by only, you know, Hollywood productions. So we're kind of trained to and not conditioned, be, right. Yeah, we're conditioned to not even want to see movies from our own country. We kind of like, like we call it Mexico Malinchista, you know, like we kind of dismiss our own uh, product. And that's not to say that just because a movie is from Mexico, Mexicans should support it if it's not good. You know, if it's not a good movie, it's not a good movie. But I do feel like the system as a whole, you know, it in Latin America plays against local productions, you know, at the movie theaters, you know, uh, a Mexican movie in Mexico only lasts a week and that's it, you know, if it doesn't make enough money, it's out of theaters, people don't get to see it, that's that, you know, because there's the new Avengers or the new movie, you know, and mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's definitely a problem that we're conditioned, we're not, we're not, um, thought or there's no education in terms of cinema for us to appreciate other uh, other forms of cinema not just commercial cinema but um in the u.s i feel the problem here is that also education in the sense that since all the movies you know are in english and the main releases uh people are afraid of subtitles you know they don't want to read you know if they, if, they, if they don't speak spanish or they don't speak the language uh they don't want to read subtitles and that's a major problem you know so these films kind of become niche and only people that really follow those uh you know international world cinema get to find out about them you know what it's it's so amazing that you just said that because there's a movie that embodies what what you just explained which is a movie called El Septimo Dia that recently oh, came that. out director Jim McKay I had him on the podcast we had a conversation and What I essentially told him is that this was a glimpse, a window into uh, people that we interact with every day, but that we treat invisible, which are the delivery boys, the messenger guys that are Mexican indigenous, because these aren't the Mexican actor, um, the the Mexican actors from like telenovelas that look like they're German or Irish, you know, these are Mm -hmm. indigenous looking Mexicans that people maybe who are not of Hispanic descent or even the ones who are of uh, Hispanic descent have 
a fear of or it's a classist thing where you're inferior than I am and then my race and I'm white and you're not. And what we notice from that film is that they're regular people. They're regular people with regular problems and it had such a nice comedic feel-good tone that for me in particular, it really changed the way I look at them. Like I always treated them nicely, but now... I have a better sense of what their lifestyle is. It's not criminal. It's these guys playing soccer, cracking jokes, trying to survive, talking to their uh, families in Mexico via via FaceTime. They want to be the best workers, uh, but they also want to have fun and play soccer in the park on a Saturday like anyone else. So that's the beauty of of watching a movie that doesn't necessarily always conform to your perception of reality. For sure, yeah. No, I think that I, I love that film. And I think that, you know, like you mentioned, the strongest uh, point for me about El Certimo Dia is that, well, I mean, aside from the fact that I think it was brilliant that the distributors decided to release the film in the Spanish language title, like every poster you see and everywhere you see it, there's no translation. That's a title in Spanish. And the film has subtitles in English and Spanish depending on on who's speaking. So I think that that's incredible, which means that people from the community could go watch this movie and understand it too. Right. But the most, you know, valuable thing for me about this film is that, you know, when you see stories about immigration, um, it's often uh, just suffering. You know, it's often these these stories about servitude yes. and, and the trials and tribulations, which is part of the experience. But in this case, it was, you know, they there were people with complex needs and complex emotions. You know, he wanted to, you know, go to work, but he also wants to play with his friends. You know, and 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 I feel like there's a level of complexity and depth to the character characters that we rarely see, you know, that these people, you know, could also have fun, could also want to enjoy simple things. And, you know, it's not only a life of servitude and, and, and drama and <laughs> right. sadness, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Why do you think that this movie is one of the best of the year and, and, and does it have the potential and the hopes of going to the Oscars and, and being nominated for Best Picture? As much as I like the movie and as much as I think that it is important and a must-watch particular in these times, you know, when it comes to the Oscars, it's it's a little complicated because... As we know, it requires a lot of money to throw a campaign. It is, it's a, it's a lot of things that go into Oscars, but, uh, and it's, it's a small distributor that might not have the funds to push it as far and, you know, to like get the outreach as much uh, to voters or whatnot. I will, I would love it for it to be considered, you know, and to be part of that conversation, but it just feels like because of the, the money that goes into throwing an Oscar campaign and getting to that level, yeah. it might be, it might be out of his league for that. But it is definitely deserving. If you had to watch one of the three, which one would you recommend the most, Carlos? My personal favorite, Sama. I think that's the one that I would recommend the most. It is perhaps the most challenging of the three of them in terms of, you know, getting into the groove of the story. But I think it's also the most rewarding. Carlos Aguilar, film critic who writes for Remescla, Movie Maker Magazine, and The Wrap. Thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and talking to us about these great movies that you've seen, sharing uh, your love and passion, and even advice of how to get into the, the craft of filmmaking. So, muchísimas gracias, Carlos. Agradece. Gracias. Thank you so much. So, as you know, I'm here in Tulum, Mexico, and guess what? I'm wearing my sax underwear right now. I wouldn't leave home without it, and you know that. Also, some good news from Saks Underwear is that they recently released their new undercover collection. It's made of super soft cotton modal. Keeps you cool no matter what. It's breathable, moisture wicking, and resistant to odor. It's like Saks took a pair of cotton underwear and catapulted it into the future. Nothing else out there like these. Now, you know, I'm a big fan of wearing Saks. I'm wearing them here in Tulum. They're the only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. The pouch they created, the ballpark pouch, you've heard me talking about this for months now. They have these internal mesh panels that keep everything in place. They offer the ultimate support. Since Saks came along, you know I haven't wanted to wear anything else. 
I want you to feel the same exact way. So I've worked with Saks Underwear on this great limited time deal. Shop from anywhere on their site and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. But to get this great offer, you need to use my promo code highly relevant at checkout. Order a few pairs of Saks now with this great offer and go to Saks Underwear at S-A-X-X Underwear.com. That's Saks with two X's and use the promo code highly relevant at checkout. Remember, Saks Underwear.com, promo code highly relevant. A pleasure to talk to Ekundayo Bandele. He's the founder and executive director of the Hattie Lou Theater in Memphis that focuses on African-American stories. Welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you so much, Jack. I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to uh, discuss Black Theater and Hattie Lou. Really appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about how you started the Hattie Lou Theater in Memphis. Why was this such an important endeavor for you? So um, in 1995, there were no significant Black arts organizations in Memphis. And this was a city that's 65% African-American. And so whenever you would ask someone what has the African-American community contributed to the artistic landscape of our city, they would typically point you to the National Civil Rights Museum. And I told them no. You know, that's that's a human endeavor. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was for everyone. I said, there's nothing here where the African-American community can point to and show that this is how we're participating. So that was the impetus. And I had a background in theater. And my founding board chair, Michael Decatani, he um, was very involved in the cultural growth of our city. So he and I became fast friends. And um, from that, we founded Hattie Lou Theater in 2006. And how difficult was it to create the theater? Uh, Did you have to uh, look for money, uh, collaboration from other art organizations? Uh, How how would you be able to realize that? Well, you know, it was really an uphill battle, understanding that there had been, been a black repertory theater in Memphis prior to Hattie Lou around 10 or 15 years before us. And they, um, you know, they kind of, uh, they actually made the front page of the paper, you know, mm. they, they closed. And so there was this question going around with foundations and donors, can a black arts organization be um, successfully led here in Memphis. So that was one of the challenges that I had to show them that, yes, this organization is different from the other ones that you funded in the past. Um, another thing we had to do was we had to collaborate with some of the larger um, the larger cultural institutions like Opera Memphis, Memphis Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. Ballet Memphis, because what those did was it led credibility to Hattie Lou through their audiences and through that collaboration. So for the first probably eight years, that's really was our focus is um, making certain our balance sheet was was balanced, making certain that um, our, our customer service was, you know, gold star, and making certain that we had diversified revenue streams. Once you got the theater, uh, was it? Were there any other challenges in terms of uh, attracting? Yeah. So you know, it's it's like that thing that is very difficult. Uh, to envision something if you've never seen it before. Right. And so there had never been anything like Hattie Lou here in Memphis. And so I had to deftly create images for the possibility because we started out in a storefront theater, um, wow. 6060. And in 2014, we moved into our newly constructed theater that is um, up to 200 seats with three performance spaces and a rehearsal space, and, and we have no debt. So the way that we had to get there was, number one, and, and here's another thing, Jack, that, that was a challenge, is really letting the white population know that black theater is also for them. 
How do you do that? So we do it in a couple of ways. One, it depends, you know, sometimes the programming um, lends itself to a more diverse audience. For instance, this past uh, February, we produced a play called Selma, and Selma was a part of MLK 50, which, of course, was our city's 50-year commemoration of the King assassination. And so all the people who had memory of that or who were socially aware and socially active, they all came. Um, we had a partnership with Ballet Memphis where we had an actress um, perform uh, monologues about the life of uh, Ida B. Wells. And Ballet Memphis dancers braided in their dance with, um, with the monologues. And so that got, you know, Ballet Memphis' audience in our theater. And it made people really recognize that, oh my God, this is great. This is accessible. You know, it isn't, um, it's, we never produce a play that blames the white man. We never produce a play mm. that, that where the black people are the victims. And so it's, it's really about uplift and beauty and strong storytelling. So that those are the main ways through collaborations and through creative programming is how we attract uh, a non-black audience. So universal stories uh, that aren't specifically yes. constructed just for the African-American uh, experience, but for all experiences that happen to have. No, they are they are about the African-American experience. Let me give you for an, uh, an example. So we did a play called Stick Fly. It was on Broadway, written by Lydia Diamond. And Stick Fly was about a wealthy black family vacationing in their massive home in Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, is when you think of Martha's Vineyard, you don't think of a couple of black doctors and their kids being there. Mm-hmm. So through that play, we were able to say, look, even in some of our country's most exclusive places, we live together and get along. So while that play was definitely about that family's experience, and some of those family, um, some of those experiences were culturally nuanced, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and but it was still showing life in a broader picture, just like we're about to do Mahalia. Right. And Mahalia is a gospel singer. I want to see it. And, <laughs> you know, oh, man, it's it's a powerful piece. And, you know, um, that's that's universal because she, she sings to the soul. You know, um, the next play after that pipeline actually has uh, non-black actors in it. And so um, those are some of the ways that. You know, we we show the universality of what we're doing. However, we don't shy away or turn away from saying these stories are authentically African-American. And then we are partnering with a uh, bilingual theater company called Casa Teatro. Uh, So a couple of years ago, we did a play called In the Heights. Yeah, by Lynn Manuel Miranda. I saw it here in New York many times. When we did in the height, you know, we didn't want to do what we call brownface, and that is get black actors to, you know, portray Hispanic actors. Um, We did have to mix up the cast a little bit, but we were able to identify a number of Hispanic actors that we were able to put in that play. By the way, I don't see any problem as a Hispanic myself in having an African American, oh, uh, yeah, at, at all uh, replace in any way. Just because uh, I feel like um, our story is very similar, and uh, you know, by hearing you talk about creating these stories, I think it's one of the problems that our own Hispanic community has in the theater industry and also in the media industry. When you have Univision and Telemundo that only specifically cater to Spanish language TV audiences and does not include mm-hmm. the African-American community in their stories, does not include right. the, uh, right. the the white community in their, in, in their stories. We just talked to ourselves and I think that today in 2018, that, that creates a very limiting effect, an, an echo chamber, uh, so to speak. So the fact mm-hmm. that you're doing this mm-hmm. with Hadalu is is very open minded, um, and, and and it sounds like you're doing something effervescent and 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 very um, long term future. So the Latinx theater community in the country is growing by leaps and bounds. 
Um, and so are some of the other alternative uh, arts organizations. There's a uh, transgender circus mm. in um, San Francisco that we've been looking at. Um, how can we partner with them and work with them? So we, we really are looking long term and trying to build, you know, and I tell some people, you know, when I'm when I'm trying to uh, come up with an idea of how we can work together, I say, look, we're not looking for a one night stand. We're looking for a commitment. And so we're really <laughs> building relationships with these organizations instead of just a one by night event. And then they go their way and we go out. Um, one of the key things that I'm very interested in the Hadley Theater is so that's in Memphis. But what is the state of black theater in America overall? And what is the Hadley Theater doing to... I guess, create more participation from other cities and other states, for example, like in New York. Uh, New York, yeah. we have Harlem, but you don't see that much. No, I was just up there a couple of weeks ago and I saw Antigone and the Marcus Garvey Park that um, the Classical Theater of Harlem put mm -hmm. on. Um, but of course, Antigone is a Greek tragedy and it's not a black story. Um, so a couple of things that we're doing. One is there's a national organization that's 40 years old called the Black Theater Network. And they're out of, uh, based out of Durham, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And uh, so every year there's a conference at the end of July and around two to 300 practitioners from all over the country descend on a city and uh, have workshops and conversations and things along those lines. This year, Hattie Lou is hosting that conference. And we offered them, you know, the building for nothing, our staff for nothing, because we understand that conversations between Black theater practitioners are vital to Black theater expanding and recovering. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a, a, an explosion of Black theaters all mm -hmm. over the country, and they're closing one after another. Why do you think that is? So a number of things. You know, um, I think the big thing, the big reason is that the larger white theaters, they have the resources and they have the human capital to produce works at a higher level. So, you know, you have a $1 million organization trying to produce work at the same level of an $80 million organization. Mm. And so what has happened is because they have so much money, a good number of African-American playwrights who want to see their work produced at a high level, they don't go to a black theater, but they go to a white theater because they have the resources to support their work. And again, you're looking at the, the you know, distinguishing those two budgets and so we can't pay the actors what the larger theaters are able to pay. And so those people, those, you know, talented actors are going to those white theaters. And so and a big thing is, is that a lot of foundations and corporations are asking predominantly white organizations to diversify their programming. And because that's kind of been the, you know, the, the, the cattle bell ringing for the last five years, you've seen an increase of historically black plays being produced in white spaces. And so, and now mind you, again, when it comes to the budget, they have more money to market their shows than a black theater. So, you know, it's a combination of, uh, you know, black ambitious theater practitioners really getting their worth and predominantly white institutions and uh, predominantly white institutions producing more works of color. So that's one of the reasons that I think um, the uh, country a as a whole is struggling, um, you know, theater-wise. And another thing we're looking to do is um, we're looking here at Hattie Lou to launch a uh, consulting firm for nickels, nickels on the dollar, mainly because some of the tactics that we've used here at Hattie Lou to be successful in Memphis uh, can be translated to another environment, to another city. So um, we're looking to get into that and really about knowledge sharing. What, what can we do as Americans 
to maintain arts and culture in our schools, in our cities, from being rich and 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 from being unbounded by any sort of like law or or or, or anything like that? What can we do to 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 sustain that? When you buy a ticket to a ballet company, when you buy a ticket to a theater opera, whatever, to any arts organization, you are aligning yourself with that mission. You know, so their mission may, like our mission, is to develop a black theater that is accessible to, relevant to, and reflective of a multicultural community. So when you buy a ticket, you're coming to see the Wiz, but you're supporting that mission. Mm. And so if you have a groundswell of people just going out Going out to that nightclub to hear that jazz band, going out to that poetry reading, going out, that then shows a demand, that there is a man, a demand for culture. Um, and, and I think then with that grassroots effort, that can expand into local elections. So, like right now, we're in 38104. That's our zip code. This is a very progressive part of Memphis. And so, therefore, the city council member or the Shelby County commissioner who's running for this district, they have to look at the core businesses that make this district successful. And those are arts organizations. So, when they see a, a theater selling out every show for a month, when they see Ballet Memphis on it, you know, turning people away because they can't extend it and there's so many people, then they're like, oh my goodness, these organizations are important. And so then once the city council and Shelby County Commission take it up, then you're looking at the Board of Education. And so then, so it's a local driver. I mean, we can continue to march in Hugh and Ha and send letters to the mm-hmm. Trump administration complaining about the decrease in NEA funding. But I think there's so much we can do within our respective communities to show that, that you know, to raise our voices, change those audience participation numbers nationally, and that will make more corporations and foundations take note. Do you have any complaints with Broadway right now? Um, my main complaint... Is but it's not really a complaint because I understand the business model of Broadway. They're, they're, those theaters are there to sell high price tickets, and so therefore they want to do productions that have the highest likelihood of attracting large audiences. A lot of those plays uh, or musicals aren't really kind of cutting edge and in your face. So you have a number of black playwrights who are producing great work regionally that will never get picked up uh, by Broadway, mainly because they're not marketable. Mm -hmm. So I understand that. Now, can they invest more in the great art they're already doing? Yes. They did Jitney um, last year. No, this year, excuse me. Jitney was on Broadway this year, directed by Ruben Santiago Hudson. Uh, he won a Tony Award for directing it. Yeah, that's right. They gave it a limited run. You know, but he had a limited run. So my thing is, man, let that bad boy sail. (laughs) You know, we can do more than the color purple. You know, give it a chance. Um, So so I think, if anything, I would uh, ask Broadway, the producers there, to consider, um, consider expanding definitely the offerings of shows of color um, that is black, Latinx, Asian, and Native American. So open that up and, and, and figure out how to make it marketable. Um, because, I mean, this is the, 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 the direction of our country, you know, where we're a more minority majority, you know, within the next 20, 30 years. And so you can't start and, you know, 2050, you kind of have to start now. One story that I would love to see the Hattie Lou Theater do is the Obama story. Somehow, yeah, I think it would be fantastic. He's still uh, one of the more preeminent figures in America. And I think he would attract all types of audiences, but it's still uh, African-American. And, um, and I think that's a story that I would love to see you guys do. Are are there any plans? Have you guys talked about anything along those lines? You know what? I talked 
a couple of years ago, last year actually, to a theater at um, in Rutgers um, about a Michelle Obama play. That sounds great and, too. <laughs> uh, that never, yeah, but it never got any, didn't get any traction. Um, I mean, you know, so the the what we would have to do is we have to first start off with licensing, and because you know, like Elvis Presley's story is trademarked and copywritten. Mm -hmm. And so I'm almost certain that Obama's story is copywritten and trademarked. So if we could find a way to say, hey, we're going to do this justice and his estate, you know, looks at our plans and maybe the storyline, then we definitely can do something like that. And you know what, Jack, I got to say, man, I appreciate you for bringing that back up because I hadn't thought about that. Um, since my meeting last year. So I really appreciate that. It's something that I would like to see. I've been thinking about well, how come no one's done it. I mean, there was a movie uh, recently about uh, 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 Barack and Michelle, how they met and how they dated. And then it just leads him right, right when right. he's about to become. But there wasn't that sort of full history, that full cycle between how he got into politics, how he met Michelle, uh, how both of them together led uh, their path into the White House and then leaving the White House because it's so recent, because so many people love him, uh, whether they're black, white, Latino. I just think that globally, that is a powerful story um, that is the African-American experience, but that translates to everyone. It's a global story. And so if you guys were to do it, it from really everything is. you've been telling me in terms of the stuff that Hadley is doing, I think that would be fantastic. So you got my vote on that. If you bring it, to, I'll head over to Memphis from New York and I'll watch it. I'm telling you, Jack, I'm, I'm <laughs> writing on my whiteboard right now <laughs> that you will get an invitation if this thing comes to pass. All right, fantastic. Ekundayo Bandele, thank you so much. Founder and executive director of the Hadalu Theater in Memphis. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking a little bit about what you're doing, what the Hadalu Theater is doing, and how we can encourage other people uh, to kickstart their own projects in their own states and cities uh, for African Americans and minorities in this country. So, once again, thank you so much. Thank you, Jack. And next time, I hope you come to Memphis and bring your soul if you when you come. Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Bandele. And that's it for me. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. All right. Heading into the beach, guys. Take it easy. Woo! Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.